Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. Welcome to the July Atoms. Survival of the fittest. Our not too distant past is decorated with artefacts. Strategies that became popular for perfectly tenable reasons, had our war wholly in 15 minutes of perfectly justified fame, and then, as new perspectives developed, were consigned to the museums of either spectacles rose-tinted folklore or spectacles replaced by blinkers, closed chapters with inverted commas, rather not discuss. There is also, though, another third group. Those practices that have evolved and improved as a result of a recognition of limitations and evolution. In geological terms, at least, it wasn't that long since I was a medical student, mid-1980s or so, when the roll call of popular interventions included the mistenting croup. Some of you will remember this. Anyway, for those who don't, this involved creating a fog in which one year or younger children came not only detached from their parents, but distressed by their treatment in a polythene tent draped over their cot. The picture in the print version will give you a feeling for this. Other practices in use at that time or shortly after included the use of the lateral neck x-ray, of course in the radiology department, in children with suspected epiglottitis, some miles from the nearest anaesthetist and ENT surgeon, lumbar puncture in all children with the first febrile seizure under the age of 18 months, even if they were running around uncatchably and happily around the ward, and routine intubation and saline lavage for all neonates with meconium staining to, again, verticomas, cover the risk of aspiration. Great for practice, likely a very limited benefit to the babies themselves in terms of outcomes. So we do our best, live, learn and adapt. This month's examples are from group three. Excellent in principle, have evolved and as a result are here to stay, probably at least in one form or another. Pediatric emergency medicine. The rise, saturation by and rethink of early warning scores. Well, after a honeymoon period noticeable for its uncritical reception and in many cases, lack of objective assessment, Paediatric early warning scores, or Q's in short, proliferated near exponentially to the point of submersion over what felt like a very short period. There was a, although well-intentioned, degree of naivety, I think, in this unbounded parameter-driven enthusiasm. The proliferation, of course, for all the excellent intentions, was part of the problem. There were simply too many in use, and it was impossible to familiarise oneself with more than a small proportion of them all. That, of course, was part of the problem. We know now that human factors, inconsistency and observer variability and insensitivities in the tools themselves, decompensation is more often subtle than measurable physiologically, contribute to their imperfections. The largest of the red flags, however, came in the form of the outstanding Epoch Cluster Randomised Control Trial, in which a number of North American and European centres managed to randomise 140,000 children, in which the bedside pews were shown to have no effect on reducing mortality, the primary outcome, in the intervention limb children. There was, though, a small but significant difference in time to detection of deterioration, and the focus has moved to this area in tool development. We should therefore applaud the initiative by the RCPCH, NHS England, and NHS improvement described by Damien Rowland and Simon Kenny to standardise the system, derive and use only a single score. 
the advantages are obvious. Consistency, simplification of communicating trends between observers and between hospitals, to reducing transcription errors, which are very possible when several scores are in circulation. There may not be immediate reductions in mortality, but the advantages in everyone speaking the same language are very clear. Fetal alcohol syndrome. Well, let's start with a paradox. For an issue as pervasive as fetal alcohol exposure, the phenotype as common as FAS, we really know very little indeed about the epidemiology. First recognised in the early 1970s when the classic phenotype, the philtrum, upturned nose, epicanthus, palpable fissure combination was described. Prevalence estimates are complicated by the small number, likely less than 10% of children actually showing these signs. The rest of the large iceberg manifesting much less specific neurobehavioural signs. Add to this the sensitivities around exposure information, making a social services decision based on uncertain data, issues around screening antenatally. There are now biomarkers in the blood with or without self-reporting available and the low yield in genetic workup series and the ways forward other than the primary prevention become rather muddied. Read both Raja Mukherjee's review and Zena Lamb's series and make up your own minds. Should FAS now fall into the, until recently at least, neglected disease bracket? A Voices from History looks at fever hospitals, which is as relevant now in many ways as it was in the 19th century. So we all know about the cyclical nature of history, but the timing of Philip Mortimer's Voices paper about the London fever hospitals is uncannily good with respect to recent events and policy changeability. The underpinning philosophy behind the hospitals was admirable. In Victorian England, beyond a degree of responsibility from poor law unions, there was effectively no central accountability for provision of care for febrile children from families of limited means. This era, of course, was the heyday of, amongst others, typhoid, scarlet fever, diphtheria and smallpox. With no viable alternatives, 1867 Parliament took hold of the issue by the great philanthropic leap of creating the Medical Asylum Board, whose main remit became the establishment of specific fever centres. After several decades in well-deserved limelight, the hospitals fell out of favour, as much with parents as policymakers. The result of a combination of a change in infectious disease epidemiology, recognition of the psychological harm to children that prolonged spells in isolation could have, and a creeping malaise around the risk of intra-hospital exposure. Darwin, aboard the Beagle, would no doubt have smiled wryly. Thanks a lot for listening. There's of course a lot more in this issue. Be sure to check out the website on adc.bmj.com as well. I'll see you next time. Bye for now.